0: The show for PC users who can handle the truth. And now, here's your host, Gene Steinberg.
1: This week on the Tech Night Out Live, we'll be featuring Kirk McElhern. He's known as the iTunes guy for Macworld. He'll be talking about high end audio and whether you can hear a difference between that and what you get from Apple. We'll also hear from Rob Pegorero, who writes for USA Today and other places. he will talk about net neutrality and lots more on the Tech Night Out Live. We have Kirk McElhern, the iTunes guy. Those of you who have visited Kirkville at McElhern.com, that's his blog, will notice it seems to work a little bit faster. You went through a complete web host switch. And we're going to talk about this because... You know, this is nothing unusual. I bet a lot of you have sites and maybe the host you're dealing with is not doing the job. You're not getting the performance you want, too many outages. So you decide to make the switch. What do you do?
2: Hi, Gene. Thanks for having me again. Yes. What happened is a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday, my website went down and it was down for 24 hours because my web host didn't have any technical support people in on Sundays. When a a hosting company guarantees 99.9% uptime, yet Sundays don't count in that, I mean, one day that's 14% of a week. I had been planning to change hosts for a while. I was still hosted by a company in France, and regular listeners will know that I left France about two years ago, and I just hadn't gotten around to it. So in a way, this was a blessing in disguise that this problem prodded me to move to a new host.
1: Let's but, mention the names here. Let's not hold back.
2: It's Go one in one I was hosted by one in one in France. Uh, one in one is an international company. I think they're based in Germany.
1: So yeah, they're a big worldwide company, kind of in the vein, I guess, of GoDaddy.
2: I was going to say, it, it's that same sort of level of service. To be fair, I had been with them for, I think, nine years. I had a couple of outages, but the service was generally okay. It wasn't the fastest host. But things generally work. A couple times a year, I would have an outage. But what irked me here was that it was a 24-hour outage, a little bit more than 24 hours. I call up, and there's no one to fix the problem. It turned out to be a server problem. You know, when you're in shared hosting, you've got a lot of people using the same server. So it could have been any one of the, the hosted accounts that, that was messing it up. They apologized and gave me six months free um, hosting, but I'm going to cancel soon anyway, so that doesn't matter. But yeah, you know, it. I think I was paying... 10 euros a month, and they sell the same plan in the States for about $10. And it was a cheap plan and it had no bandwidth limits. And I never hit any other kind of limits, but it just wasn't good enough for what I wanted. So I talked to a few friends, and one of them recommended that I move to a hosting company in the States. Should I say who recommended? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it was you. It was Gene who recommended that I move to Namecheap in the States. Namecheap has what they call a business SSD plan. Where your site is hosted on an SSD, Um, they say there's fewer users per server, it seems like the site itself is faster because of that. But at the same time that I moved the site, I did some site optimization, and I even wrote an article on my uh, website yesterday about this, giving three tips, um, very simple tips that you can use to make your website run a lot faster. My son, who was a web designer, helped me out, and we looked at a number of things, and we found things that were slowing down the site, and I was going from an average of about an eight-second page load for the main page of my site, not for individual stories, and now I'm down to between two and three seconds. I'm impatient when I go to load a web page, and if it doesn't start loading immediately and it doesn't load in a few seconds, I generally assume that it's not going to load or it's going to take too long, and I know that a lot of people are like this, so... If you can't get your web pages loaded in, let's say, less than five seconds, you are going to lose viewers to your website.
1: Now-, now, let's be specific about this just to get a sense of what's going on here. Now, I want to define shared hosting better for people to, so they understand the different levels of web hosting. So the 5 or $10 a month deal you get from one of these hosts, that's where they put a bunch of domains on a single server. The problem with yeah. that is fine, because they're using pretty good hardware, except if one of those or two of those sites are using too many resources, taking too much traffic, it slows everybody down. So that's where yeah, you go. Yeah. That's the that's problem.
2: The best analogy for that is imagine if you have 20 user accounts on your Mac, and everyone's trying to work at the same time, even, let's assume they're connected remotely or whatever. You're going to have bottlenecks at certain times. It's not going to be all the time, but you're going to have certain times when I don't know, one user's downloading or uploading big files, or another one's got a sudden spurt in traffic, and it's going to affect you as well as everyone else.
1: Now, to understand things better, over here at the Tech Night Out Live, because we have two radio shows nationally syndicated, we have a number of popular blogs and stuff, we have our own server, a dedicated server that we lease. And that means we get the entire server for ourselves, So, if anybody is clogging it, it's us. There's nobody else there who's going to affect the performance. Of course, if you're going to pay five or $10 a month, you've got to share the environment. Now, they have two levels above that, which we should explain to people. One is called VPS, which is Virtual Private Server, which is like you put a virtual machine on your Mac under Parallels or VMware, where you can run another operating system, but sharing resources with your Mac. So, in this case, They set up these virtualized or virtual machine environments, and they'll put some accounts on the same server, but not as many. But each one, each one of these virtual machines gets full control of their environment. It's like having your own server only in miniature, and you're still sharing some resources.
2: In addition to that, you're allocated a certain amount of RAM, Um, and I think that's a pretty hard allocation. So if you've got two gigabytes of RAM, that's what you will get, even if someone else is using their RAM to the maximum, unlike in shared hosting, whereas everyone... Um, imagine you've got six lanes, lanes merging into one on a road. That's what it can be like if everyone's trying to merge at the same time. If everyone's using the server at the same time, then you'll get the bottleneck. But with a VPS, you do have a dedicated, like your own lane,
1: Now, that lane is too small for you. You go to a dedicated server. A dedicated server means it's all yours, it's your problem. And of course, they have different levels. You can get a dedicated server for $50 or $100 a month, you can get some for thousands of dollars per month. So it depends on what you want to do. Well, it depends on your
2: traffic. It depends on if you need a really fast server or not. If you need gigabit Ethernet going out, it's going to cost more than if you just have a standard website. Um, If you get millions of visitors uh, every month or every week even, you're going to need a much more powerful server than if you only get thousands.
1: Or you might need a cluster. You might need several servers. And if you're Apple, you need maybe a 100,000. In fact, maybe you had heard this, Kirk, Apple is going to convert this company that failed to build Sapphire products in Mesa, Arizona. Apple is going to spend $2 billion to convert that factory to a huge data center with renewable energy. I just mentioned that because I live three miles from there.
2: Really? That, that close? close? That close. Ooh, you're you're going to have yes. to sneak around there and take some photos while they're building it. You think? Yeah, that should be that would be cool. Get All yourself right. a drone. Do some flyovers.
1: I have to call Amazon. I understand they're experimenting with drones.
2: <laughs> but yeah, that that's a great idea of them. I don't know exactly what happened. Did they sort of Inherit that factory when the company went bankrupt because the company didn't meet their contract, or did they buy it out? I don't know what the deal is, Um, but it is a good idea that they do that because they're they're taking what's apparently quite a large factory and retooling it essentially to do something else. They they need more data centers, and in fact, this kind of fits in with a rumor that's been circulating the past couple of days that suggests that Apple might be going into the search business, creating their own search engine.
1: Oh, boy.
2: So if they did that, they're certainly going to need more data centers. We know they have the big one in North Carolina. Where are their their other big data centers right now? Isn't
1: there one near Reno, Nevada? I don't know. And probably we don't know all the locations. Anyway, we're kind of digressing, but you understand here, if your needs really outgrow a shared environment, a dedicated server, you get lots of them, like Google. Google's using the same servers, you know, modified that you can get for your own website, only they use, you know, a million of them or whatever. We have Kirk McElhern joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night How Live. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
5: You pick up
0: the receiver. With your heart racing and sweat dripping from your forehead, you finally muster the courage to dial the number to call into your favorite talk radio show. It rings once, twice, and then. Hello, it's
6: GCN. What's your name and the state you're calling from?
0: Surprised you got through, you squeak out. Jason from Minnesota. Please hold. As you patiently wait for your turn, you begin to daydream about being a famous talk radio host and what it would be like to have your own show.
7: Jason from Minnesota,
8: you're up. Millions
0: of loyal listeners worldwide waiting to call and talk to you. Caller, color are you there? Cheering crowds surround you, calling out your name. Jayson, 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 Jayson. Going once, twice. Okay, we gotta move on to the next
8: caller.
0: You blew it. Huh? Wait, no! Interact with the host you're listening to right now. Online at GCNlive.com Click on the community link. Engage with other listeners. Ask questions. Start debates. Don't agree with a host? Let them know. Be a part of the community at GCNlive.com
1: We never forget to mention Tech Night Out Plus, which is our premium service. You can subscribe for just $5 a month, $50 a year. $175 gets you five years. And a high-resolution version of the show where we take out 41 minutes of network ads. So you get a faster show, I guess. Or we can make ourselves talk faster. We have Kirk McElhern. And we're focusing here on the mechanics of A web hosting situation. So anyway, Kirk checked out Namecheap at Namecheap.com to see their offerings, and he settled on this business plan, which is on SSD. Now, an SSD is, those of you who followed my odyssey of upgrading an iMac and later, as a matter of fact, a 17-inch MacBook Pro with an SSD, means fast speeds.
2: It means a lot faster. I've got one in my MacBook Pro. I've got one in my Retina iMac. I've had an SSD uh, since the very first uh, MacBook Air. And so that's what, 2008? Is it that? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Someone gave me the first MacBook Air as a gift with the SSD, and it was very expensive. I couldn't have afforded it at the time. And immediately I saw how much faster it is. If you want to upgrade an old Mac and make it fast... The first thing people generally recommend is to add RAM, and that makes a difference. But the biggest difference today is an SSD. Your Mac will boot in 10 seconds. Applications open quickly. So obviously, a web server that's running on an SSD, the server's going to be faster. It's going to read your database faster. It's going to read your files faster, and it's going to serve them a lot faster.
1: So that's the one advantage here. So after getting things optimized, your sites load fast. Now, can you tell our listeners, without getting into geek web hosting data center kind of details... Exactly what you did to make it faster?
2: Well, there, there's a website site called Pingdom, P-I-N-G-D-O-M, and you can go there and you can test your web page at three different servers and you can see how fast it loads. And you'll see the elements that slow it down. Now, on my site, I have sharing buttons like most people have on websites these days. There's a Twitter button, a Facebook, Google+, etc., and the version that I was using, which is part of the Jetpack plugin, which is a plugin that's provided by WordPress, would automatically query Twitter and Facebook looking for the number of shares. And I realized that this was slowing down my page loads a great deal. It was adding a couple of seconds to each page load. Um, the second thing I did was I optimized my images. Now, you can get a, a free Mac app called Image Optim. Whatever image you have, you just drag it into the window, and it'll optimize it. Um, It can save up to about 50% on the size of images. Now, I do use a lot of screenshots in in many of my blog posts, so I've lowered the size of my main page. Text doesn't take up a lot of space, but it's the images that slow things down. So I've dropped about a megabyte off my main page. Uh, I don't always have a lot of images, but when I do... It makes a big difference. So they're about thirty to fifty percent smaller. So, pingdom let me find not only the jetpack plugin but other things that I slowed down that were slowing down the page load. Um, there was a JavaScript from a plugin that was slowing it down, um, so I removed that. Um, and the the other thing I did that's really interesting is the host that I have uses cPanel, which is what would you call it, Uh, uh, an interface, right? It's a web
1: control panel.
2: It's sort of the user interface to the server. And on cPanel, you can enable compression in the web server. Now, it's off by default, but if you turn it on, it means that the Apache web server, which is the standard web server that runs most websites, will automatically compress your files before it serves them, and all modern browsers can decompress them. So you can save another... 10, 20, 30, 50 percent, depending on the type of file. So all of that cut basically the size of my pages in half. And of course, that makes a huge difference.
1: So after all is said and done, you were able to get yourself a pretty decent performance improvement, that and the SSD. So overall, I guess you're pretty happy with the service.
2: Um, For the most part, I'm pretty happy. I've had a couple of glitches. They're the only support they offer is by live chat, and it takes about a half an hour to get through the whole process and get an answer. Um, they also
1: offer support by service tickets, so you yeah, can file a it, service if it's ticket if something
2: it's not urgent. Um, but for example, I had a problem that certain things weren't loading, and they were getting blocked by something, and I couldn't figure it out. Um, so I had to have them explain what was going on. I, I'm not going to explain what it is; a little bit complicated. Um, but that it takes a half an hour each time you have a problem like that, that the time that you get through the first level to the second level of support and they check things and they look at things and then they figure out what to do. Um, it can take a while, but I think I've pretty much resolved everything that's going to be problematic. Um, and performance wise, I'm quite satisfied as for the rest, you know, we'll see what happens.
1: Well, the thing to bear in mind, too, when you switch your site to a new place, there always are going to be glitches. There's configuration differences. So you have to kind of get things working. It takes a few days. There's always this shakedown cruise. In any case, the site loads faster. When the site loads faster, more people are inclined to stay around. And you've got a lot of great new content there. And we're going to get into some of that stuff right now. Let's. Let's. Okay. So we've been talking quite often about Audible differences in low quality audio, high quality audio, so-called lossless audio or uncompressed audio. What makes a difference in the sounds you hear? And can you hear a difference? So there's a product that came out and they had one of these crowdsourcing fundraising campaigns. And the product is called Pono Player, which is basically a digital music player that from the side looks triangular, I gather, that is supposed to present higher quality audio. And then they have a website where they offer these remastered versions of albums that are supposed to deliver this higher quality audio. Now, when the Pono Player came out, and it's 400 bucks to buy one, by the way, when it came out, a lot of people reviewed it. So, of course, over at Yahoo Tech, David Pogue reviewed it. Over at Ars Technica, which is a highly technical technology site, They reviewed it. Pono Player. And their response, and you can give me the background now, but let me just nail it right here. A tall, refreshing drink of snake oil. Tell us more about Pono Player.
2: You got to love that headline, right? I Um, love it. They're really good. Well, Pono Player is based on the fallacy that Neil Young has been passing around for several years now that you don't hear all of the music when you listen to compressed audio files.
1: Now he it's, should know because being a rock star
2: in his seventies, he can't well, hear anything anyway. Well, he's he's said years ago that he has hearing damage and very strong tinnitus. This is he stopped touring for several years because of this. So I don't think he's the best person to judge. But he's he's a little bit disingenuous. He always keeps talking about 128k MP3 files, which is something that we haven't used for let's say, five, six years at a minimum, when the Apple store moved up to 256 k Pretty much everyone followed. He comes up with these statements that are devoid of facts, such as compressed audio only has 10% of the music. And it's simply not true. We'll get into
1: why. Why is that not true? With Kirk McElhern, I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live.
0: Great minds think alike. for the independent-minded. The Genesis Communications Network. G-C-N.
1: let Bitdefender worry about security. Just enjoy your Mac. Bitdefender Antivirus for Mac. Complete protection 24-7. And take a selfie with your Mac. Post it on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And tag it #HugAMac for a chance to win a MacBook Air. To learn more, go to bitdefender.com backslash hugamac.
9: bitdefender.com
1: backslash
9: hugamac.
5: The Freeze-Dry Guy presents Freeze-Dried Turkey, Freeze-Dried Ham, and the No-Bake Casserole Unit February Sale. Listen, if you trust the Freeze-Dry Guy as thousands have for their emergency food supply since 1970, don't wait to hear how great this deal is, because it's unlimited supply. Call 866-404- 3663 and ask for our new Turkey and Ham Unit. Normal retail price $359.94. Sale price $251.94. You save $108. And it's chock-full of high-quality, great-tasting, freeze-dried diced turkey and ham from Mountain House. The Gold standard and long-term storage products or get the freeze dry guys no big ba- casserole unit 153 servings per case at normal retail price of 215.94 sale price 172.75 you save 43.19 but supplies are limited and we always pay shipping right to your door within the lower 48 states call 866-404-3663 and make freeze dry guy.com a favorite and check for monthly specials don't miss the freeze dry guys february sale call 866-404-3663 or visit freezedryguy.com.
10: Live with Gene Steinberg, it's the Tech Night Owl, because you never know what's going to happen next.
1: We have Kirk McElhern, and we haven't checked his degree of hearing loss, but probably there isn't much because he listens a lot to classical music. I don't know if he attends a lot of rock concerts. I'm Gene Steinberg here in the Tech Night Out Live. And we're talking about the Pono Player, which, of course, was touted heavily by Neil Young, who was certainly not in any position to hear audible differences in anything but the basics.
2: Yeah, there were two good reviews. You mentioned the Ars Technica review, which was actually quite balanced. It did highlight a lot of the good points of the Pono Player. But another review on Yahoo that David Pogue wrote was much more critical, He listened to it, and he said, I don't hear any difference. So he got a panel of about 15 people to compare music from the Pono and an iPhone. So high-resolution music on the Pono and standard 256K files on an iPhone of the same music. And pretty much no one heard the difference at all. In fact, most of the people actually preferred the iPhone in terms of sound. It shows, and we've discussed this in the past about high-resolution music, it shows it's very subjective and most likely subjective in the same way that The placebo effect works, that you're convinced that it's going to work, and you've spent a lot of money on the hardware. And the software and the music files of Pono albums cost twice those of albums on the iTunes store, if not more. You're going to have what's called confirmation bias. Basically, you want this to sound better and it will subjectively sound better. You You know, it sounds
1: like a line from A Few Good Men. You
2: want it to sound better. You need it to sound better. Sorry. (laughs) Well, some people do. Some people need this crutch to justify their expense in expensive audio equipment. But when it comes down to it, And I think the last time we talked about high-resolution audio, I said the same thing. If you've got really expensive audio equipment, and if you've got a room that's been treated in such a way that can take advantage of that audio equipment, maybe you'll hear the difference. But the ticket to entry for this, to hear this kind of a difference, is way too high for 99% of people. Now, the one thing
1: I saw in the tests, and I'll kind of prejudge this right now, that I thought was sufficient is... We're dealing with remastered versions of the recording. So therefore, the output level is very likely to be slightly different. If it is slightly, ever so slightly louder, even by a fraction of a decibel, you'll perceive that as having more presence, maybe being more immersive. So the trick is when doing a double-blind audio test, you level match the two sources to within one-tenth of a decibel. And the unfortunate fact is that every single test done so far of the Pono, even though they don't find much in the way of audible differences, is defective in the sense they don't mention that key factor. Now, if it's the same audio just being run at different bit rates. We assume the levels are going to be the same. But once it's remastered, all bets are off. You got a level match. And that well, wasn't done.
2: Well, well, that wasn't done, but not all of the albums sold in the Pono store are remastered. In fact, I think fewer than 10% of them are high resolution. 90% of them are just lossless. Only a handful of them are actually remastered. And this was one of the things that Young was touting, that it wasn't just the player that he was selling. He was selling all digital stream from the original tapes being remastered to his standards, sold digitally, and then played back on his device. And this is not turning out to be the case. There are very few remastered albums. It's certainly not worth paying their prices for lossless music. You can get the same music cheaper on CD and rip it yourself. Even the high resolution files, apparently there are only a handful that are actually remastered. So there are a lot of ambiguous things going on in this story. First of all, the point of making a portable high resolution player is somewhat ridiculous because when you're on the go, you've got background noise and sounds around you. So you won't hear the subtle differences that there might be even between a very highly compressed file and a lossless file second thing is that neil young made it very clear in an interview i think at the ces that they won't be making the pono player for very long that it's going to be basically a music dealing business that the pono player was probably just to get a lot of attention and it did get a lot of attention and that they're going to just have the store and sell the music so it's kind of strange to figure out what their game is on the one hand they sell this player that's not very practical. The shape doesn't fit in your pocket at all. Most of the music they're selling isn't up to the standards that they claimed it would be. And now they're saying the player is not going to be sold. What very, do you mean
1: the player is not going to be sold?
2: Well, They're going to sell the, the physical player. They're going to sell it for a while, but it's not the, their long-term goal. That they'll sell the music through their store, but that they won't keep selling the player. It seems like it's going to have a very short life. I don't know if this is the only production run they've got or if they're going to keep selling it for a year or two but I can't imagine that they're going to sell it much longer than that. There's really not much of a point. Uh, again, yeah. most people don't want a player like this for portable use. They want, If they want high-resolution music, they're going to be listening to it at home. They're not going to be listening to it on a portable player.
1: All right. I could see the value in in one way, which someone said, and that is the fact that there's no longer an iPod Classic and you want a music player with a decent amount of capacity. This might be a possibility. But other than that, it seems to me... What's the point? If you're not going to sell the player, then you have to depend on selling the remastered versions of the music on their website to earn a living. And if you're not really doing a lot of those albums, you have to make the deals with with each artist, with each music company to do the remastering. If you're not doing this remastering and not providing this alleged much higher quality recording, what's the point in the enterprise?
2: Yeah, the the remastering is is an expensive process. This is labor-intensive. You don't just convert a file on a computer. You have to have people go into the studio, take the tapes, and spend, you know, several days to be able to do it. Not just Um, several
1: days, but sometimes several months.
2: Well, no, not several months. It may be a couple of weeks for some albums, depending on how much work there is to do it. It's not a process that is automated. It's a question of whether the record labels want to do this. It's not Pono that's paying for the remastering, maybe for Neil Young's albums, but not for the rest of them. So it's not a, you know, it's it's not a process that's going to happen overnight. I'm just looking at the Pono store as we talk. Um, Bob Dylan's new album, Shadows in the Night, that came out the day before we are recording this, is only available in a 24-bit, 44.1 kilohertz file. Now, generally high resolution, it's considered to be 24.96. So here... It's the same sample rate as a CD. That's the 44.1 kilohertz. But it's a higher bit depth, the 24-bit instead of 16-bit. So it's not a big difference. It's twice the price. This is a brand new album. It makes me wonder why everything's recorded in at least 2496 or more in the studio. Why isn't it available in a higher resolution format? It's very surprising.
1: Well, the other issue being, can anybody hear the difference anyway? Any audio expert worth his salt will tell you, that the resolution of a standard 16-bit CD is higher than what anybody can hear. So what's the point of offering something better? I mean, if you feel emotionally you're hearing a difference, well, that's fine.
2: Yeah, I'm just looking through some more albums, and none of them are higher than 24.96. Uh, Neil Young was touting 24.192, which is an extremely high sample rate. And like, ridiculous. Even dogs can't hear the frequencies that that would produce. It's, uh, again, only a handful of them say remastered. So the Led Zeppelin albums are remastered, but that was a remastering that was done, I think, last year um, for Led Zeppelin. It wasn't done for Pono.
1: It was Jimmy um, Page's remastering.
2: Right, right. So they've got Blood on the Tracks, a high resolution, but it's not remastered. They've got um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, it says 40th anniversary celebration, but it doesn't say remastered. They've got Get Your Yayas Out, which is a I can't Stone.
1: wait to have my Ya-Ya's get
2: out. That's the first one I'm seeing that is a 24-192. Now, that's interesting. So this album was recorded in 1969. It's very unlikely that the tapes that they have have data, have sound that can, that can reach the limit of what they are selling here. In other words, that sample rate and bit depth. Um, those tapes are very old. As tapes get older, they degrade. Uh, you know, tapes, they're all wound together and they're magnetic, so they sort of bleed onto each other. It's very, very unlikely that this, while it says 24, 192, it's certainly not that quality. And it's 21 bucks for the album.
1: A little bit later, we'll be hearing from tech guru Rob Pegarero. We've got more to come with Kirk McElhern. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night
0: Out Life. <laughs> just an alternative to the mainstream media. We're the premier independent talk radio network. We are GCN.
12: I had tried everything. I'd cut back the amount of food I was eating. I was lifting weights and jogging, but nothing was working. My body was literally starving for minerals and trace elements as well as key vitamins. And as soon as I had that, I immediately could eat half of what I was eating previously and be satisfied. Now, there are hundreds of great products at InfoWarsTeam.com, but I want to point out the three that have helped me lose 37 pounds in just two months products like beyond tangy tangerine pollen burst and rebound when i started taking the tangy tangerine and other products every day i lost more than 37 pounds in just two months now that's results i want to challenge my listeners to go to infowarsteam.com and to order just three of their products and you will see the changes in the way you look feel and in your appetite almost immediately start your journey to health and wellness today infowarsteam.com
10: know what's going to happen next well here's the tech night owl live with gene steinberg
1: so can you hear the difference between the high resolution audio files or not Kirk McElhern, the iTunes guy, joins us. Kirk?
2: Yeah, I'm just going to say, you know, no, most people can't, so don't waste your time.
1: You know what's really disingenuous here? Obviously, Neil Young is touting exotic solutions to getting better quality music. He's not in favor of vinyl. Some people feel that vinyl sounds better. And there are measurable reasons why. Number one, it has a softer sound. And it sounds smoother. That might be an artificial smoothness. It sounds smoother. And the soft surface noise of a record is very soothing.
2: So the people who say that vinyl sounds better are saying that it sounds better objectively, where it doesn't. It actually sounds worse, but it's just that people prefer this sound. It's a sound that it's hard to explain if you didn't grow up with vinyl. Um, But the distortion and the wear that you get in an LP actually make something sound smooth was a good word i can't think of a better word than that but neil young points out it's not so much he doesn't like vinyl what he's pointing out is that most uh that that vinyl lps that are sold today are generally cd masters that are pressed to vinyl now if you were around in the mid-80s when the cd came out um the earliest CDs didn't sound very good because what they were doing is they were taking masters made for LPs and they were putting them onto CDs without changing anything. There are all sorts of things that are different um, between an LP and a CD. There are the fact that the frequency response of an LP is different when you're at the beginning of the record on the outside um, and you get into the center of the record because the speed is different.
1: Now, when um, a mastering engineer does this, and I've seen mastering engineers do this kind of work, they compensated for this on the course. recordings to compensate for the lapses in the vinyl recording format to make it sound as good as possible. Of but course. the problem here is if you take that raw, unfettered quality recording, which is be your mastering tape, they use like a recording tape to generate the master from. This is how they did in the old days. If you take that mastering source and present that to a CD where there is no sonic degradation, you hear it raw, it is loud, it is harsh, and doesn't sound very good, which is why CDs at first didn't sound very good because they cheaped out. They simply took the vinyl master's and made CDs direct from it, right, which of course you can't do. You really need to go back to the original recording before it went through the vinyl mastering stage and get that sound.
2: Right. That's not what's happening with LPs these days. At least I doubt that any LPs are actually, ha- actually have LP masters. Um, right. Well, okay. So when you've got your final mix down tape, you need to master it twice, once for an LP and once for CD. Um, And what Neil Young is saying is that's not happening. And I'm pretty sure it would be surprising if it is happening. It would be surprising if there are still many mastering engineers who have the technique to be able to do this. Um, One of the things that's interesting about vinyl records and LPs is that if there's too much bass, it'll make the needle skip. So. In order to compensate for this, there's something called the RIAA pre-emphasis curve. Now, RIAA is the Recording Industry Association of America. And they came up with a sort of um, a method to compensate for the reduced, based, the reduced bass in an LP. So when you're playing it back through a record player um, in an amplifier, there is a filter that augments the lower frequencies of bass to compensate for the fact that the bass on the LP is reduced. This is why when you look at an amplifier, you have a separate input that's marked phono. If you plug a turntable into your aux input in an amplifier, it's not going to sound right, because the phono input goes through a separate filter that's going to correct this bass. It's similar to Dolby noise reduction, whereas going in, it reduces something, and coming out, it reamplifies it. If you're taking a CD master, with normal bass and popping it onto an LP, you're going to risk to have too much bass on it.
1: Now, I once had a conversation about the mastering process with a guy named Bob Ludwig, who was one of the most famous mastering engineers on the planet. And I talked to him for a few minutes about this. And what he told me is he keeps a cheap vinyl record player, or did then, when he's mastering for vinyl. And what he does is he takes the acetate that he generates From his mastering equipment, he plays it on this cheap record player. And if it sounds okay, it doesn't skip, he says, that's fine. That's his determinant right there. If it skips up the kazoo or sounds really bad on the cheap record player, well, he has to do it again.
2: Yeah, the skipping is one of the most important things because of the bass. Uh, so if it does skip, you need to tone down the bass a little bit. And there's nothing you can do about that. And again, the frequency response varies whether you're at the beginning or the end of the, the record. I, I remember seeing a documentary about the Grateful Dead when they were recording uh, American Beauty, and I think it was Bob Weir, uh, one of the guitarists, who said that they would argue about who got their songs on the beginning of the side of an album. since there's more, Since the grooves are longer... Right? Remember, it's, it's, it's turning at the same rate. So there's more information in the outer grooves. You get a better, more full sound in the outer grooves than in the inner grooves near the end of a, an LP.
1: Now, I would suspect here also on making concept albums, in those days, the artists would be cognizant of that and in mixing the album down or in choosing which tracks to put at the end of the album they consider the fact of the matter of the various limitations point being here is that vinyl is a very very flawed format and even worse no matter what you do that record after being played 10 15 times on even the best equipment has already deteriorated noticeably will be noisier and especially in the inner grooves will sound even worse
2: yeah and and that's something that people who are vinyl fetishists They like to pretend doesn't happen, that they have good enough cartridges and and styluses um, that won't wear out their records. But you just can't avoid it. If you're going to play a record long enough, it's going to wear out. I mean, I've worn out records back in the day. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows that, you know, after you've played a record 50 times, it's going to wear out. You'll have knocked the tone arm a couple of times, and there'll be a couple of clicks in places that you've scratched it. It, it's a very malleable surface and that stylus is is a diamond so you know it cuts very quickly into the vinyl
1: and i know in the days i was working in radio this is before they actually pre-recorded all the music and what we do is we take the recording and we go to the first note we back off so that way when we're talking we'd hold the record as a turntable starts spinning so we'd hold a spinning record in our hand to stop it from spinning as we talked And as soon as we're ready to start the recording process, we'd release it. But this backing up to the first notes and just starting the playback just before that, it increased the surface noise because you're going back and forth, back and forth on the first couple of seconds of the song. So after a while, your 45s or LP, they get very scratchy there, so you'd have to replace them. Otherwise, you'd have all this surface noise at the beginning of the song. Of course, if you talked over it, maybe people would notice, but still. Now, later on, of course, radio stations would pre-record all their records as soon as they got them and put them into the rotation on cartridge machines, like four-track cartridge machines, but these were broadcast-quality cartridge machines.
2: Right. Right. These 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 are cartridges cartridges. that look like eight-track tapes
1: very either four actually closer to four track, but the the key being here is that this way they had the same quality from the first day they played that recording till the time they stopped playing it. Later on, they put them on digital
2: well, and, those uh, tapes those tapes degrade as well Cassette tapes real to real. They all yeah. degrade over time. that's uh, why they went but, digital. but tapes degrade much, much more slowly um than vinyl does
1: in any case. So now you see that vinyl may seem to sound more pleasing, but it's not an accurate reproduction of the original performance. And if the original performance sounds too harsh, well, that's the fault of the people who are making that recording. It's up to them to get the sound they hear to be reproduced in the recording. And if they do it the right way, well, you get a great recording. If they make a mistake or they don't care, You don't get a good recording, but it's not the result of the format because if you're using CD or a really high quality compression format like AAC, the sonic difference is not going to be that much different from the original master. And most people won't hear it no matter what they say. I hear that we have Kirk McElhern joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg, you're in the Tech Night Out
0: Live. From the shackles of corporate America, we're the place for independent thinkers. GCN. We've been patiently waiting. Waiting while you tried to ignore us. Waiting while you acted like we didn't exist. Waiting for our chance to be taken seriously. The wait is over. (laughs) GCN is available 24-7 at GCNlive.com. Navigate through news from your favorite hosts and download archives of past shows. Download the app on your smartphone or tablet or visit GCNlive.com for instant access and live streaming. GCNlive.com, the future of talk radio. Now at your fingertips.
8: Welcome back to the Tech Night Owl Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: We have Kirk McElhern. He is here. He is not there. He is not everywhere. And we're talking about, of course... Lots of different fascinating subjects this week. One of which we talked about at the beginning of the show was the fact that he moved his site, so it's now faster, breezier to get there. We also talked about high-quality audio and about the sonic differences. I want to ask you very briefly here, and you maybe could tell me what's going on here. I just installed iTunes 12.1. You're the iTunes guy. And before we explain my tribulations Tell us what is an iTunes 12.1 that's new different or whatever?
2: iTunes 12.1 basically has um, two changes. Uh, one of them is that syncing is supposed to work more efficiently. And the second one is uh, the second one, which Apple didn't say in their release notes, is that the info window, this is the window that when you select one or more tracks, and you press command I, you can change the tags of a track, so the the name, the album name, the artist name, whatever. This window has been redesigned, um, supposedly to make it easier to use. But other than that, there are no real changes in it. I mean, there's probably a bunch of bug fixes, but on the surface, there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing else that's important.
1: Now, for a while, it's working now. But for a while after I installed it, when I plug in my iPhone, it wouldn't auto launch iTunes. But
2: suddenly, it started working. Maybe after you rebooted your computer. No? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to troubleshoot these things. One of the problems, being the iTunes guy, I get you know a dozen or more questions a week from people who write through from Macworld. And some of the questions are pretty basic. You know, how can I do this in a smart playlist? That kind of thing. But some of them are very complicated. My phone won't sync. What do I do? iTunes doesn't display my phone when I connect. It's a really complicated thing because iTunes is using so many layers of the operating system when it's syncing. It's using networking. It's using um, USB. Even if you're not connected wire with a wire, it's still using a whole bunch of different frameworks under the hood. Um, I wish Apple would provide some sort of sync log to help you find, um, when you have a sync problem, where it's getting stuck. Because often... A lot of the sync problems are a single file that somehow is causing iTunes to stop syncing. But there's no way to access any of that. Even in the console app, which records system logs on OS X, there's nothing that lets you see um, where any problems would have occurred.
1: Are you seeing more and more people complaining about iTunes since iTunes 12 came out?
2: Yeah, a lot more. Um, There were a lot of complaints that started with iTunes 11, which was what a little more than two years ago now. Because it was the first thing that started changing the way some of the basic functions worked and and the way you would sort of access certain things. Um, But the number of complaints and sort of frustration uh, that, that people are venting about it is just, it's really, it's surprising. People find it unfamiliar, confusing, uninstinctive. You have to think an awful lot when you're clicking in different places to make sure you're getting where you want to go.
1: People complained about the missing sidebar in iTunes. And what they've done is you have an option called playlists. When you mm. click on your music and playlists gives you that sidebar. Problem is you have these operational buttons or navigation buttons in the center of the application below the Apple menu. Of course, if there's no music playing the problem being that every time you choose a different function to use app store, such as podcasts, such as music or movies, the positioning and labeling changes. So your yeah. muscle memory suddenly is being challenged because you may be used to pointing your mouse or whatever in a certain place and it's not there anymore. The command you need.
2: Yeah, that that's one of the things that throws a lot of people off. Uh, the fact that as you shift from one library to another, the options are different uh, the view options are different, the the places you can click, everything just changes. It's something. It, it doesn't make any sense in an app that it change the way it looks. It, it's certainly normal to have contextual functions and features that when you're doing a certain thing, let's say you're in mail and you've selected a message, um, there might be some buttons on the toolbar that are dimmed or that aren't dimmed depending on what whether you've selected something or not. And that makes sense. But And that sort of dimmed, non-dimmed state is something that helps you understand that you can do something, you can do B after you've done A. But having things move in different positions with different labeling is just confusing. It's just cognitively confusing. And it makes people a bit frustrated, I think.
1: Now, I understand the logic here from Apple Sense in having context-sensitive functions, which is maybe what they were considering. But again, as you say, a lot of people... Don't look at a label. You know, you're used to pointing to a button in a specific location to do something, and it's no longer there, or yeah. the function is no longer there. It just becomes confusing because your mind has to stop and think, what is it I need to look for and where?
2: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, you know, iTunes is the the app that the most, it may be the app that most people use in the that. It may be the most used app in the entire world, actually, when you think about it. Um, What have they sold? A billion iOS devices. I think they said they have, is it 600 or 800 million iTunes iTunes accounts? accounts. Um, Uh, So every every single single one of those people uses iTunes at some point. It's massively popular. It's, It's the biggest app ever. And yet Apple seems... Apple does two things. One is that they keep changing now in each version. They change too many things uh, as far as the interface is concerned. And two, they don't seem to be really attached to the way people use it and are more concerned about pushing people to the iTunes store. And so that's one of the big changes in iTunes 12 is that you've got the iTunes store in the navigation bar. So in the center of the window, no matter which library you're in, they want you to always see that the iTunes store is there because they want you to buy things whereas an awful lot of people use iTunes to listen to music and manage their movies and all that and they know the iTunes they know how to get to the iTunes store even if it's a separate button and that in itself confuses things that this it's sort of, sort of constant, constant pushing people to buy
1: now I understand but, the reason for pushing people to buy that's the profit center but what should Apple be doing here? Revise the interface? What about suggestions on the part of some people that Apple needs to separate all these apps because it's just too yeah, darn I, I, confusing. Don't, I don't
2: buy that. I don't buy that at all. Um, what would you rather have? One app that manages all your media or a separate app for music, one for movies, one for TV shows, one for podcasts, one for audiobooks and ebooks, let's say, one for apps, another one to sync, and another one for the store. Would you rather have eight apps than one? People who say that iTunes is bloated aren't thinking logically because when you're not using part of an app, it doesn't affect you. It's not the fact that the features are there that bothers you. Um, I really don't think we want to go back to, uh, you remember the app called iSync some years ago that you could use to sync a variety of different devices? We don't want to go back to an app that manages syncing uh, separately from something that manages your media. It really doesn't have a lot of sense to it. And separating out each of the media types is just as ridiculous. Bear in mind, one of the biggest reasons why Apple will never do this is remember that most iTunes users are running Windows. It's an awful lot easier for Apple to manage one app on Windows than it is to manage eight. Because then they've got to worry to make sure that everyone has all of the apps um, or they're going to have all these support problems. So, no, I don't think, I don't think Apple's uh, iTunes is bloated. I don't think it's too big. It manages things quite well. It chokes a bit on large media libraries, and it always has, and I wish they'd fix that. Um, it can be slow. I mean, I've got a Retina iMac, which is a relatively fast computer, and I still get beach balls at times when I'm moving around in iTunes, and that simply shouldn't happen.
1: And remember here, a Retina iMac, and I've used one for a while because Apple sent me one to review. A Retina iMac is one humongously
2: fast machine. It's, it's In some ways, it's faster than the Mac Pro. It
1: is. Anything less than four cores, yeah, it's yeah. faster. Anything that requires more than four cores or benefits from those extra cores, and that's maybe a f- small number of apps, will yep, yep. make the Mac Pro more flexible. So we're talking about Up to 4 gigahertz processor, Intel i7, a humongously fast machine. We have Kirk McElhern joining us for one more segment on the Tech Night Out Live. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
15: Hi, this is Steve Spillum for Midas Resources. In 1971, President Nixon took the United States off the gold standard and put us into a fiat currency. This allowed Congress and the Federal Reserve to create trillions of dollars out of thin air. The national debt has risen to incredible heights and your hard-earned dollars by a small fraction of what they once did. The average life expectancy for a fiat currency is 27 years. The dollar is failing and on borrowed time. When currencies fall, people turn to gold and silver because gold and silver have been real money for more than 5,000 years. It is our mission at Midas Resources resources to help you preserve your capital. Don't let your personal savings shrink to nothing. For important free information on how you can protect your personal wealth, contact me, Steve Spillum, at 1-800-686-2237 extension 308. Call today while we are still accepting dollars for gold and silver. 1-800-686-2237 extension 308. Make a change in your financial security today. That's 1-800-686-2237 extension 308.
9: What good is a big Berkey water filter?
16: filters can last for five to ten years. That means big savings. Big Berkey, the one that's powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water. Get a Big Berkey today at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. GCN listeners receive five percent off all ceramic filter systems. Visit our website or call one 99 berkey That's eight seven seven ninety nine 99 berkey Big Berkey Water Filters, for the love of clean water.
4: The national crisis is here, and most people are not ready. If you could not leave home, how well would you fare? We've been told for years to
12: have a supply of food stored, but the reasons may be different than you think. Infectious disease, domestic terrorism, and government regulations can and will prevent you from going to the store. If you've ever considered getting a supply of food, now is the time. Call Go Foods at one eight hundred six four eight nine seven five three, or on the web at www.storefoodnow.com.
8: We'd like to hear from you. If you have any thoughts or comments about the Tech Night Owl Live, please get in touch at news at techniteowl.com. That's news at techniteowl.com. Looking for past episodes? We've got hundreds at com slash radio. That's owlcom slash radio. Or subscribe on iTunes. But before we get
1: back to Kirk McElhern, the iTunes guy, let me just tell you one more thing. Go to plus.technighthowl.com, plus.technighthowl.com. The plus with a P L U S, and what that does is gets you information about our new service called Tech Night Owl Plus, where we offer a subscription version of the show. We knock out forty-one minutes of network ads make it higher resolution and you can hear the difference. Unlike lossless audio compared to 256k AAC, you will hear the difference. Kirk, let's move on here. So in general here, it seems that with every release, Apple takes iTunes and moves it farther away from being simple, making it more complicated, more difficult for customers And I understand the desire to want to take you to the App Store or the iTunes Store to buy content. But isn't there a point of no return here?
2: There is. But if you look in the past, they've been trying to do this for years. I think it's 10 years ago that they introduced this thing called the iTunes Mini Store. It was a sort of a pane that you could open from the bottom of the window that would actually connect to the iTunes store. And then a couple of years later, they had the iTunes sidebar or the iTunes store sidebar. When you selected something in your library, it could display related content from the store in the sidebar. Now, both of these obviously failed. Um, then they had that ping social network, which was a disaster. It, it
1: went pong.
2: Yeah, and then there was, in iTunes 11, there was a way of having some iTunes store... Information show up in certain views, and that failed. The problem is that people know the iTunes Store is there. Then they're not ignorant of it. And trying to push them, you know, I mean, music sales are falling in the iTunes Store. That's that's uh, that's just a given. Um, app Store app sales aren't though, and I don't think music and TV shows have been broken down to know. Um, they're trying to stop. Fall in sales, perhaps in music, but that's not how to do it. You don't compromise the usability of an application just for something like that. There can always be a big iTunes Store button someplace, say, in the toolbar. You don't have to have it in the area where you're navigating, and you don't have to link the navigation to it. So, if I'm in the iTunes Store looking at movies and I want to go to my music library, I need to click music and then I need to click another button to choose to get out of the iTunes Store. So you you've got a double layer of navigation when you're in the iTunes store those buttons at the top left navigate the sections of the iTunes store and then to get out of it you've got to click another button in the center let's say my music or playlist or whatever it is it's just too much it's not logical and you know i'll go back to something that they sh- got rid of years ago that they should bring back they should have colored icons instead of these black icons the the same You know, in the Finder, they took rid of, they got rid of the colored icons. Makes it much harder to navigate. It really does. And they're they're thinking of a certain design aesthetic, which may or may not be attractive, but they're not thinking of usability here.
1: Is that Jonathan Ive's fault?
2: Well, it seems that it is, because he sort of took over the global design of, I guess, OS X and and iOS in general. I mean, he's not doing the nitty-gritty design, but he's the one deciding, do we want color or not? I'm pretty sure.
1: Yeah, I don't see the reason. The problem here is when Apple executives are interviewed, they're not really being asked those questions. You know, we go back, for example, where one prominent executive was asked about the iOS 8.0.1 update. It came out with some bug fixes for iOS 8, but on iPhone 6 or 6 Plus, It had a serious problem. It stopped it from being able to work with cell phone calls and also caused Touch ID, the fingerprint sensor, to stop working. Now, Apple fixed it quickly. But according to this Apple executive, the problem was not in the update because it was the same update released the next day with a different version number. It was the wrapper. And no one asked him, what do you mean by wrapper? Is this the installer? Is this the distribution mechanism? What the heck? 'cause the rapper. And it gets back to the same thing here. We have some rather questionable choices being made by Apple, such as getting rid of the color icons in the Finder and in iTunes. And who is asking them the questions? You know, when Tim Cook is interviewed, as he is more than Steve Jobs was, they ask him some overreaching questions. He gives his canned answers and they settle it and they accept it. But Does anyone say, hey, there's a few technical things happening with the interfaces on Macs, on iOS? What's your take on this?
2: Yeah, Yeah, I I think, you know, Apple, I'm sure, reads a lot of feedback and reads what the websites say about things. And I know that there are people at Apple who read my blog. But I think that Apple is stuck in a sort of a groupthink, that they just don't accept that anyone else has ideas and that they just have to do it this certain way. You know It's hard in a big company, a company the size of Apple, because someone has to make the final decision. But the fact that there are so many things that can be problematic. Let me give you another example. I know someone who has very serious balance problems. Um, He's a tech writer over here in the UK. Um, His name is Craig Grinnell, and he writes for a number of publications. And when iOS 8 came out, there were all these things moving around, and it was really problematic. And he wrote several articles about it pointing out that people with balance problems, they can't have the background, the sort of parallax view. And you can turn off some of these things, um, but there's still a lot of movement and things that you can't turn off and you can't change. Um, there are serious accessibility problems in both iOS and OS 10 that Apple just doesn't seem to care about addressing, whereas there is a fairly large percentage of the public who is affected by this. And, and these aren't even design questions. These are just saying, hey, give people the option to turn off an annoying feature so they can use the device a little bit better.
1: Well, you can turn off the motion and the zooming
2: in the accessibility preferences. You can, but there are still a couple of features that you can't turn off. I can't remember exactly which ones. If, if you remember when they first came out with the translucent toolbar in OS X, there was no way to turn it off. And then they issued an update. This was Mavericks, wasn't it? And then they issued like a a 9.1 update where you did have the option to turn off the translucent toolbar. Um, this, This whole obsession with translucency, to me, is just misguided. You're making... It's not translucency, it's blurring things. It's making things harder to read and harder to use just because of the cool factor. You know, if you remember when they first introduced fast user switching and there was this cube that turned and when Steve Jobs was giving the keynote and he shows how it works and the thing, the cube turns and everyone cheers and he smiles at the audience sardonically and says because we can that's what's wrong with apple doing things because they can rather than doing them because they're appropriate for users
1: a big mistake big mistake that apple's making you know i could see though offering maybe a few flourishes optionally you know reverse the thing you know with less flourishes out of the box and then say you know if you want these special effects Go to your preferences and turn them on. And that's it. You want something different? You want something flashier? Turn it on. Do the reverse. Make it more comfortable for users. Kirk McElhern, where do we find more of the things that you do?
2: Well, you can go to my website, Kirkville. That's M C E L H E A R N M-C-E-L-H-E-A-R-N.com. And it's a lot faster than it used to be, as Gene pointed out. And you can find me on Macworld, where I write about iTunes as well as plenty of other things.
1: We got plenty of other things to talk about here. On the Tech Night Now Live, Kirk McElhern. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me again, Gene.
0: Not just an alternative to the mainstream media. We're the premier independent talk radio network. We are GCN. Neighbors, are you tired of dealing
1: with a slow web hosting provider? Well, check out
5: The Freeze-Dry Guy presents Freeze-Dried Turkey, Freeze-Dried Ham, and the No-Bake Casserole Unit February Sale. Listen, if you trust the Freeze-Dry Guy as thousands have for their emergency food supply since 1970, don't wait to hear how great this deal is because it's unlimited supply. Call 866-404-3663 and ask for our new Turkey and Ham Unit. Normal retail price $359.94. Sale price $251.94. You save $108. And it's chock-full of high-quality, great-tasting, freeze-dried diced turkey and ham from Mountain House. The goal standard and long-term storage products or get the freeze dry guys no big ba- unit 153 servings per case at normal retail price of 215.94 sale price 172.75 you save 43.19 but supplies are limited and we always pay shipping right to your door within the lower 48 states call 866-404-3663 and make freeze dry guy.com a favorite and check for monthly specials don't miss the freeze dry guys february sale call 866-404-3663 or visit freezedryguy.com.
10: What's going to happen next? You never know when you're listening to The Tech Night Owl, live with Gene Steinberg.
1: Now, this age is me, Rob Peguerero. I'm as old as the Hills, or the Hills were alive before I was. I haven't determined that yet. But I do remember as a kid, I walk into the Radio Shack store when I want the latest cool Cutting edge technology, and now Radio Shack has declared bankruptcy. There's talk of maybe Sprint running some of the stores, Amazon running some of the stores.
6: What happened? Yeah, <laughs> the the one word answer that immediately jumps to mind is Amazon. But it's you know it's been tough for a lot of electronic stores, but Best Buy seems to have hung on a whole lot better. Uh, with Radio Shack, I don't know. You know I know what you mean? I used to when I was at the post there was a, and I guess there still is for now a Radio Shack at the corner of Fifteenth and L Street. so I'd anytime I needed to sort of buy some random widget for test purposes or just see what the the current pricing on say a DVD player was, I'd run downstairs and check it out. Yeah, and the thing is in some ways it was really convenient. Radio Shack stores they were the ones where you 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 wouldn't have to drive out to the mall. you could find them in the city. You know, they, w- they would have s- such a weird mix. You know, you'd have like usual selection of new phones, some nice TVs, whatever their house brand was. I can't remember it right now. And then they'd have every kind of connector and, and cable known to man.
1: Whatever you needed to connect to whatever you needed to connect, you get a Radio Shack. Of course, there came a time when the prices weren't very competitive.
6: Right. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the other one word answer I could give you for what happened to Radio Shack is monoprice. You know, these days, if you want every cable known to man, they've got it. And they've got prices, as I haven't seen anyone else beat their pricing on an HDMI cable in a while.
1: Yes, and of course, Radio Shack had their own brands of smaller screen TVs, DVD players, everything, their own gear. So, I remember buying a Radio Shack cassette recorder in yep. the
6: 1980s. Yeah, they uh, you could get a whole... TVs, stereos, receivers, CD players. Planking on the name, what was the name of the, the brand they had there? I'll look it up. I have it just at the tip of my tongue. I was going to my say Insignia, but that's Best Buy. Pardon? Insignia is Best Buy's house brand, and I just cannot remember what Radio Shacks was.
1: Regardless, they all had these house brands. And you had to wonder here, did... The rise, number one, of the big box stores, big box retailers, Walmart, did that hurt? In addition to Amazon, being able to buy anything you need online, you need some kind of weird cable, go to Amazon. Of course, you can't just go down to the corner store and buy it, or maybe you will if they put out retail stores, but that's right. also the, the issue here, instant gratification. I go to Radio Shack, I take it home. I go to Amazon to order it, I wait.
6: Not as much as you used to, but yeah, it's not. And of course, you know, some people do like to actually look look at and touch the device they're going to buy before actually putting down their money for it. Yes, there
1: is something about that. The thrill of being able to have that instant gratification. And now when you go to the Radio Shack site and you look at stuff that is... A finished product, like even a stereo turntable, it's an unknown brand. Not even the house brand is there anymore, I, I don't think.
6: Yeah. I don't know. So last summer, they uh, they had an event at the Radio Shack Store in downtown D.C. Uh, across the street from the Verizon Center. And um, they, they were talking about all, all the stuff they're doing to sort of, I guess, tap into kind of the maker movement. Like that, they had a bit of a seminar there on building a little LED light using a soldering iron, which I have to admit was the first time I used a soldering iron. And I thought at the time, well, that's that's not a bad strategy to go after. People are, you know, there's a lot of interest in, in making your own gadgets and, and not just buying pre-made stuff. But I don't know. On the other hand, I remember thinking that they had a 3D printer on display there. And I thought, well, they, they should just, you know, print whatever shape files you bring to it. No, they weren't doing that. You could buy the whole printer if you wanted it for $2,000 or whatever, but you could not actually just use this device that they would keep in working order. Like in the state of my basement, I don't want to put a 3D printer there. It'll get jammed up with sawdust in about a month or just plain old dust. You know, I want someone else to keep t- take care of that machine for me.
1: In fact, that could be a good source of income for them, where right. they do and services like that that you can't get. At your Walgreens store or your Walmart, where you can certainly get photos printed. But what about making something from a 3D image
6: Yep, a 3D plan? Oh, that's the funny thing in D.C. If you want to do that, you're almost in the right location. You want to go two blocks to the west. The uh, MLK Library, they have this digital uh, commons room downstairs where, yeah, with your library card, you can uh, 3D print whatever you want. You know, send them the file. They charge some nominal fee to account for the consumables that's a neat feature. Okay. So
1: the long and short of it is, is it that Radio Shack didn't adapt to the new way retailing is done fast enough? Is that a big
6: part of it? Yeah, it's that, I guess it, it stopped being a place where people would sort of obviously go. Um, you know, it's not like they made a whole lot of bad decisions. Um, you know, you look at the other big electronic stores that have gone by the wayside: say CompUSA, Circuit City, you know, there were, they had other issues besides just product market fit, I guess. Although it's going back a ways since Circuit City, they went under, was it 2009, 2010? Not not a recent development.
1: And also, and
6: course, you have to think of the other chains,
1: Lafayette, which became Circuit City. Originally, Lafayette <laughs> was a place where you would get kits to build your own radio gear. It's not just buying your hi-fi system there. And that's what became Circuit City. And Circuit City, of course, was very similar to Best Buy, but never held on. CompUSA, the consumer personal computer mass marketing dealership. And finally, they tried to embrace a profile that was more similar to Best Buy with generic consumer electronics, such as TVs and such. But it was too late
6: for them. Yep. All right. So... Radio Shack now, what's the latest? What we don't know is what's going to happen with the stores. There's been discussions of, you know, uh, Amazon might buy some, which would be <laughs> weirdly appropriate, I guess. Um, the, who else was in the line to buy them? Sprint. Like, yeah. Sprint, yes. Which is just, yeah, I don't think Sprint's problem is not having enough stores. I don't quite get that. But, of course, it does look as if Sprint will buy one-third of
1: the remaining Radio Shack stores. You know, when I look at Amazon, I wonder what's going to happen here. Will it be like the famous Sears catalog store? You used to find those in a lot of small towns. You go in there and you order from the catalog, or in this case, I guess you order online. They have little computers there. And you return merchandise that maybe isn't what you want, and you pick up your merchandise. Maybe there's a handful of things on sale there. But that's yeah. It. So would an Amazon store be that equivalent?
6: Could be. I mean, they've got all kinds of options there. Um, certainly with the, the business they're doing with Amazon lockers and whatnot, that's, that's something you could certainly put into a, a real-world location instead of having to rent space in someone else's store.
1: But the big problem I see here, in addition to the possibility that Radio Shack won't be there, most of the stores or all of the stores will be closed because there won't be enough buyers for it, is that tens of thousands of people... Are going to be without jobs yeah and not because they did anything wrong they could follow the corporate line they could do stellar work they can even bring in decent amount of sales for a store but it's just not good enough
6: yeah that's the uh fortunate part of life in the global economy i guess so if anybody wants today to
1: start a retail store you know the arguments are against it for a lot of cases because if yeah. it's consumer electronics, there's no need for it. If it's just core electronic parts, well, there's no need for that. You'll order it online. Okay, you have to wait a day or two. But then in another year or two, the Amazon drone will bring it to your home <laughs> or office. I mean, you order online at 10 a.m., at 11 a.m., you get the part. And if you have to return it, another drone comes a couple of hours later. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for the Amazon drone yet, but it may be inevitable. We have Rob Pegarero joining us and we're talking about the impending demise of Radio Shack more to come on the Tech Night How Live.
0: We are the premier independent talk radio network the Genesis Communications Network GCN.
7: It's no secret that government and big business buy in bulk and get huge discounts not available to the little guy. Until now. Introducing a breakthrough crowd buying website where people can join together, buy in bulk, and get massive discounts on millions of popular products. It's TogetherSave.com. TogetherSave.com. You can save 20, 30, or even 50% off tablets, smartphones, cars, appliances, textbooks, sports equipment, video games, and much more. All with free delivery. Check it out. TogetherSave.com. Visit now and start group buying today at
17: TogetherSave.com. Hi, this is Larry Smith. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, like when the jeweler ruined my ring and wouldn't do anything about it. But when my legal shield attorney called him and told him what my rights were, I received a check for over $2,100. Worry less and live more with LSProtection.com. That's LSProtection.com or call 855-340-SAVE. Again, 855-340-7283.
7: Results will vary from case to case. On Facebook, on the news, and in conversations with friends, we're bombarded every day with advice on how to be healthier, from gluten-free and non-GMO diets to how much exercise and sleep the body needs. But how much have you heard about alkalizing the body? AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops are a holistic and natural way to get your body's pH levels back in balance. Just a few drops in water will help your body rid itself of harmful waste, and even the healthiest of diets can be complemented with your daily use of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops. Who isn't looking for more vibrance, vigor, and energy? Now buy two bottles of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops and get $10 off your order. Visit Alcavision.com or call 800-518-7615. AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops are packed with a powerful combination of the most alkaline minerals and compounds. Open the door to greater health, vitality, and zest for life. Alkalize your body. Supercharge your health. Call 800-518-7615 or head to alcavision.com. Hey, guess what? They've got some great
18: deals for Valentine's Day at guns80.com. They're calling it the Sweetheart Special. Guns80.com has lowered the price way down to four hundred bucks up until Valentine's Day. Order your Ghost AR15 now. Tell your sweetheart that this is the right gift at the right time. Buy one for yourself. Buy one for your sweetheart too. Your sweetheart will thank you for being so tuned into his or her needs. Get a brand new Ghost AR15 right now for four hundred bucks. Heck, buy two. His and hers. Go to Guns80.com or call and ask for the sweetheart deal. Love is in the air at Guns80.com. Call now, 844-2GUNS80. That's 844-248-6780. It's a sweetheart of a deal. Actually, it's a steal at 400 bucks. So call Guns80.com at 844-2GUNS80. But hurry, supplies are limited. Call 844-2GUNS80 or get your ghost AR-15 today at Guns80.com on the web.
10: Never know what's going to happen next while listening to the Tech Night Isle live with Gene Steinberg.
1: I think the thing that bothers me most about things like this, where a chain is going out of business, a chain store, is is there a future in Physical retailing beyond the grocery store, maybe not even that.
6: I would say yes, actually, because if you look at some things, um, I was reading a piece on uh, the Atlantic somewhere. Essentially, like, it's not all bad in physical retail, but you do need to do something that the other ones can't do. So, you know, indie bookstores are actually uh, the future is not all bad there. Uh, what, you, what you get in trouble doing is if, if you're just offering the exact same thing you get someplace else. You know, you need to have some sort of services you get in in person, you know, just offering even if it's the exact same price, you know, the, the customer still has to leave their home and their office to go to your store. Now, I, I'm not as pessimistic about real world bricks and mortar retail as a lot of other people are, but a whole lot of people have made huge mistakes along the way. Now, if I was CEO
1: of Radio Shack, what could I have done to stop this or it never could have been fixed.
6: Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, certainly like services. Another thing they were talking up at this, when they had this event at the, the DC store was their, their screen repair business, which, yeah, I mean, that's a problem people have all the time. Apple charges too much. Uh, and that seemed to be like kind of a late addition there. Because meanwhile, you go to a mall, you do have the screen repair kiosk. that's you, You'll probably go by two or three before you can escape it. So, you know, maybe that's one way you fix it. You know, they certainly have the advantage of better locations than a lot, than a lot of the, their other competitors. You know, with the with Best Buy, they have, like, some certain minimum size. And, and they're actually relatively city-oriented. Like, you can there, – there's a couple of different Best Buys that are right off the metro in D.C. That's, that's not been the case of most other electronic stores. You know, I, I don't know if they needed to – you know, probably could have cleaned up the inventory a little bit. But I don't know. I'd, I'd like to know, you know, what they're – what kind of long tail effect they had in sales. What Did they really do a whole lot of business in all those random cables and connectors and, and plugs and whatever? It would be fascinating to see what really moved off the shelves.
1: And now when I need all those crazy cables, do I hopefully find them at Walmart if I need instant gratification? Sometimes you do. Walmart um, has small sections in their electronics department, especially at the superstores, where you can get some of those parts. And the other problem Radio Shack had is their pricing was never very good. I mean anything you wanted from batteries to plugs, if you couldn't get it at Walmart and you went to a radio shack, the price was inflated, much higher.
6: Yeah. I don't know. The last thing I bought from there, I think, was a uh an over-the-air TV antenna, which is actually still plugged into the upstairs TV we have, which was $13, a great value added since, you know, look, my definition TV for free. What's not to like?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the last time I went To buy something like that, I think it was $25 for the cheapest one, but that was maybe a year or so ago, and I was trying to see if I could cut the cord, and part of it was to have the TV antenna. That's another story. Speaking of things online, let's move to a very deep subject here. Net neutrality. Now, let's redefine it because there are certain people with political bents who are saying that net neutrality takes away your freedom. And I guess it does if you're a big ISP, but certainly not the consumer. So let's define it all over again. What,
6: Rob Pecorero, is net neutrality? Yes, it is. It is whatever you want it to be, depending on where you're arguing. But in reality, what we're talking about is is something fairly straightforward. It is the idea that an internet provider should not be trying to make a market in different kinds of data or, or different levels of priority bits are bits, and it should serve them up as efficiently it can and not try to get all cutesy and creative by charging people for faster access to the other side of the connection, having the the secondary market and prioritized service, or in in the worst case scenario, blocking competing services outright. Remember when you couldn't use FaceTime over 3G on the iPhone? Um, it, It doesn't mean regulating the internet, which I've seen that mistake made in more than one headline. And although they talk about regulating internet access like a utility, it doesn't mean that, uh, say, Verizon will need to get permission to build out its Fios network. Uh, I'm kidding. They're not building it out. As as if it were, you know, Dominion Power seeking permission to build a new coal power plant. Um, And the funny thing is, the things that net neutrality regulation, as outlined by the Federal Communications Commission, the things that it would stop are things that most internet providers say they don't do already. So the, the amount of blustering they've been doing about it is really sort of puzzling. And, and it, it's also, you know, just makes me laugh flat out. We have reached this point because Big Telecom would not take yes for an answer. Uh, it started when Comcast sued the FCC for not even getting fined. The FCC scolded them for interfering with BitTorrent traffic in 2007. And Comcast said they wanted to defend their good name. I'm not sure how many of the subscribers would say Comcast has a good name to defend, but set that aside for now. Uh, and the FCC lost that suit. They came up with a, a weaker set of open internet rules, which allowed pretty wide latitude for wireless carriers to discriminate against traffic and allowed for some level of secondary markets in fixed wireless broadband. While Verizon sued it didn't like those either. And then uh, it, opinion swung around pretty solidly. You know, when you when you have John Oliver calling you out, and then after the election, President Obama said, "No, we should do Title II," which is something that I and a lot of other people have been saying for a while. You know, if you want to have net neutrality rules, you know you can you can ground them in authority the FCC has had since about 1934, which it exercises right now over voice wireless phone service, and I don't think it seems to have ruined the wireless industry. Or you can try to concoct all sorts of other legal theories and, and not undo the reclassification of Internet services from tele, telecom services to information services. Uh, description just doesn't even really identify what they do. And so now the FCC is saying we're going to go back to basics. We'll, we'll reclassify these services as Title II common carriers the way they were. They all were until 2002 and go forward from that.
1: So sometimes the illusion of deregulation
6: creates its own complexities, which is what it sounds like here. Yeah. Now, the the more coherent critique of net neutrality is this does give the FCC pretty broad power because that part of the Telecom Act of 1934 does all sorts of provisions that allow it to you know regulate rates, require unbundling of the last mile, which is how DSL used to work. You had so many different DSL internet providers because Verizon and, and PacBell and all the other regional bell carriers at the time had to provide access to their central offices and their last mile of copper to people's homes, to competitors. The SEC has said, we're going to vote to forbear that. And you could say, well, what if they, you know, when, when we're looking at President Bernie Sanders in 2017, he takes the oath of office, then all these things can happen. Well, yeah, it could happen. Really unlikely. You know, and, and if that happens, if there's such a sweeping change, That um, a president has popular support to push through these things and put people in the FCC who are going to totally re-regulate all broadband internet access. I'm going to assume that's also associated with a sweeping change in Congress, so that you know, even if the FCC doesn't want to do it, Congress could vote and make this the law, anyways. So that that seems like a really uh, that parade of horribles is also a parade of straw men. So if, if the carriers, if the big internet providers would finally take a step back and think about this. They would just get up from the table, stretch and say, okay, fine, we'll deal with it. Fighting this is not going to help their cause. It is certainly not going to help them in the court of public opinion because they have lost decisively.
1: Now, of course, the common perception of a violation of net neutrality means, for example, that your ISP will throttle Netflix. So you get your Netflix binge so house of cards coming later this month february in april we have daredevil orange is the new black shows like that you want to binge watch you don't want to have that thing slowing down even though you've got your super fast internet connection that's what net neutrality is about that's the core of it you don't want them doing anything that will prevent you from getting any content you want at the same speed But that also applies to what they call these backbone providers, like level three, et cetera, where they're passing through the Internet traffic from the source, Netflix or whatever, to Comcast or Cox or whatever it is, that they don't pull shenanigans. And there aren't these weird things where at the border of the two services where they hit your ISP, suddenly there's a dispute. And I've seen this happen. Suddenly there's a dispute over whether they should bring the content over at full speed because one is not paying the other the proper ransom. So that's another issue of net neutrality. And maybe you can explain how this all works, how the, the signal from your Netflix your Apple or whatever gets to you and the paths it takes and all this mischief. Rob Pecorero joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. <laughs>
0: America's largest independently owned communications network, GCN.
18: You ever hear about Ghost 80% AR-15 rifle kits? At Guns80.com, they are the 80% specialists, helping to protect our privacy. Look, there are forces out there right now trying to register guns for future confiscation. UN treaties threatening our Second Amendment, our freedom. You need a Ghost AR-15, get it at Guns80.com. Call 844-2-GUNS-80. That's 844-248-6780. Own an AR-15 today and keep it a secret. Go to Guns80.com. That's Guns80.com.
4: 844-2-GUNS-80.
8: Welcome back to the Tech Night Out Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So, what is the backbone provider, the peering provider, Rob Peguerra? What does that
6: mean to me? So page out of my life. Uh, I am a Verizon Fire subscriber, and for many, many months, Netflix was unwatchable. It would pause and buffer and stutter all the time on a connection about five times faster than Netflix says should have been necessary. And under the SEC's identity proposals, they, they will be looking into these interconnection issues, which involve basically, you know, the, the internet is, is not this just vast, homogeneous sea of data. There, there are backbone pipelines going from one carrier to another. It really is a series of tubes in this way. And there, there are all sorts of different ways you can choose to process that traffic once it gets from the edge of the network to an internet provider and its customers. And with Verizon and Netflix, you know, here again, Verizon, they're, they're really, they kept on saying, oh, this is Netflix's fault. They're doing this, they're doing that. Well, now the FCC is, is going to do what I think is a very understandable response and sort of demand some transparency about this. And they said, they're saying, you know, we will look into cases where there's something that is, you know, unreasonable going on. You know, you'd think that shouldn't be necessary, but Verizon, they, they happen to have a streaming media business of their own they own a share on Redbox, I think. And of course they also sell Fios TV. So yeah, and, and their response to, to blame Netflix when Netflix was working fine on a lot of other internet providers really rang false to a whole lot of people. And so I'm, I'm glad the FCC is saying we will consider complaints in this area as well. You know, I don't know if they'll be able to get things resolved. I do know that since Verizon and Netflix inked some interconnection deal where Netflix is paying Verizon for some priority connection, that now it's watchable again, which is nice, you know, to get the service I'm paying for. I kind of appreciate that.
1: But the problem being that Netflix had to cut a deal to get this to happen. Yeah.
6: They had to do the same thing with Comcast.
1: Now, in terms of reactions, we have the crocodile tears from the ISPs. Yeah. And the proposal was made this week, supposedly will be approved later this month. Is that a certainty now? Or do you think that the politicians and the other members of the FCC might say, you know what, send it back, let's reconsider it?
6: It looks pretty close to a done deal. You know, there's a uh, three to two majority in the FCC, people who've said they favor tunnels of deregulation. Tom Wheeler, the chair, he seems to me to be a guy who counts his cards very carefully. And so, yeah, I do not think there's any doubt about this. You know, Congress may try to pass something, which is funny now, the, the alternative in Congress that is being thrown about, which would strip the FCC of some authority, would also impose all sorts of things that the carriers were saying were anathema a year ago. You know, the, the, their fallback option is the sort of thing they said was, was horrible last year. Uh, and I don't see that's getting anywhere because if it's going to like strip the FCC of title two authority period over broadband access, then I think that gets vetoed. I did have one, uh, one tech policy type I talked to said, you know what, what the GOP should do is pass a bill strengthening Obamacare and then add a rider to it that also vacates the FCC's Title II authority. But of course, they're not going to do that. So I don't really see what stops this. I'm sure Verizon and AT&T will sue because that's what they do. But in this case, you know, they they might be able to chip away at the outer boundaries of it. But given that the FCC regulated broadband uh, providers as Title II common carriers up until 2002, and the law itself has not been changed since then. I don't see how you beat that in court.
1: Well, the other thing here is anything they pass, the president simply vetoes it. Unless they have a veto-proof majority, which they do not in the Senate, it doesn't matter. It's just another wasted thing. It's like repealing Obamacare for the 56th time. It means nothing. It's just an act. Yep. So it doesn't happen. So all things being equal, what we heard this week... From the FCC, that's going to come to pass. More than likely, once it comes to pass, the ISPs will attempt a lawsuit or two, but eventually will accept it.
6: Yeah, they're going to have to. I mean, they need to recognize on a fundamental level they have lost.
1: (laughs) Now, the other thing is redefining broadband. Now, it used to be the broadband was what, four or five megabits, which is nothing. You can barely get Netflix with that with high definition. Now it's 25 megabits. Which, you know, is not always possible right now. I mean, I see one company, CenturyLink, pushing 12 megabits. So now you're being told that broadband is really, at least, except in the real small rural areas, 25 megabits. So what does that do?
6: Does that well, force I guess the means ISPs I'm... to give you better service and more speed? There, I'm not quite sure what they're doing, because I have to confess, I mentioned I'm on a 15 meg finance connection, which I guess is no longer broadband. It certainly seems fast enough to me, and I'm not sure it justifies paying, you know, an extra 10 bucks a month or 20, whatever Verizon is going to ask. Um, given that, I mean, in some ways, I don't want to have a connection that's too fast. I want to sort of have some sense of what it is like for people who have a slower connection at home. Plus, you know, I'm cheap. So, yeah, I, I would have I said, you know, gone with my own prejudice and said, well, clearly you need a 15 minute connection to have broadband. Um, 10 certainly seems reasonable. But, yeah, the old threshold of, of four four down and one up is, is not going to cut it. Um, I think it, it is important that you have some definition of it. Otherwise, you know, ISPs will, will tell you, well, there is competition. You know, X percent of Americans have a choice between broadband providers. And by broadband, they mean 1.5 megs or at least 1.5 megs down. And that is definitely not enough. I used to have DSL at that speed. And when I first got that in 1999, it was amazing. And when I finally upgraded from that in like 10 years later, it was not so amazing. And so I think the the real underlying political point of that 25 meg definition is, you know, that is a level where you can do all kinds of not just home services, but run a business off it. And at that point, your your choices and the state of competition start to look pretty awful.
1: Maybe it forces these ISPs to find ways to speed up your service, find tricks in the technology. I mean, there are things they've done with cable modems that allow a specific connection and signal with a little bit of ledger domain to be doubled.
6: Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's I don't know that um, major ISPs like a Verizon or an ATT and t will be shamed into upping their... their speed tiers because the government says it's not broadband anymore i mean you know you want to talk upgrades that could be done verizon they could make their dsl a whole lot more competitive they would they would deploy things like you know adsl 2 plus or um the the, what is the g.fast but they don't want to you know they they would rather just be done with copper already they seem much more interested in selling wireless access where of course it's data capped and you know it's much more expensive you know compare their pricing to t-mobile much even with the the 10 price cuts they just announced it's (laughs) <laughs> not, not so great of a deal in a lot of ways. Well, that's the other big issue here. So we have faster speeds.
1: We have Netflix and Netflix is starting to send us ultra HD or 4k content. And suddenly we're consuming all the data we can. And now we have these bandwidth caps on the part of ISPs. And I just observed with CenturyLink and with Cox, how easy it is say if you do online backups or something, to meet or exceed that bandwidth cap real easily. But what is the cap you face with those? Well, with Cox, it's 400 gigabytes. With CenturyLink, it's 250. Now, Cox, if you get the GigLife, which is their new gigabit internet that's being phased in, you get a full terabyte of bandwidth. Yeah. But if you have their other plan their next fastest plan which is 150 megabits and i've tested installations and you really can get that it's 400 gigabytes and it's it's not enough I mean, if you're running a online backup with a crash plan or one of these other companies does online backups you got a lot of stuff on your hard drive you're going to use up a lot of that
6: yeah online backups will definitely get you in that area i have I don't have to worry about that because Verizon, for their, their other issues, they do not have a data cap or tiered pricing or anything like that with FiOS. It's just your connection. You know, use it as you see fit. And really, it's hard to see the this, the case for that. You know, this is this is not like Spectrum where, you know, there there are actual capacity issues. You know, I mean, no one else. The issue, is the issue being
1: like, here is that if their servers are overloaded, put in more servers. If they feel they can't make a living, raise the price, Would be fair to everybody. Rob Peguerero is here. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live. Neighbors, let Bitdefender worry about security. Just enjoy your Mac. Bitdefender Antivirus for Mac. Complete protection 24-7. And take a selfie with your Mac. Post it on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and tag it Hugamac for a chance to win a MacBook Air. To learn more, go to bitdefender.com backslash hugamac, bitdefender.com backslash hugamac.
12: They are ready to answer your questions at 800-686-2237. Again, that's 800-686-2237.
1: and the content you're getting when you try to cut the cord from Netflix, Amazon Prime, whatever. You also have to look at what the cable and satellite providers are doing to combat cord cutting. So now we have Dish Network and we have something called Sling TV. All right? Is this it's kind of like basic cable but
6: streamed online? Well, I'd say it's better than basic cable. With Sling TV, you pay twenty bucks a month, and first off, that's the actual price. It's not twenty bucks a month plus. Oh, you must rent our tuner or our DVR for another five, ten, or fifteen dollars a month. Twenty bucks a month. Um, you can watch it in a bunch of different apps. There's an iOS app, an Android app, um, Roku uh, available for Amazon, for Amazon as well. And for that, you know, you, you don't get. 80 channels you get about 12 but the most of them are channels you actually want the big one of them is espn which until recently was the channel that was never ever going to be available only online and so you get espn you have food network hgtv cnn travel channel uh basically channels most people have heard of that you you might actually want to watch there's a couple of add-on packs one for five dollars has a bunch of like kids shows of various kinds Another for five bucks has some other like news and info shows. That it's DIY, which is good. Uh, HLN—that's CNN's used to be headline news. Don't really need that, and it's a good deal. I'm a cord cutter, and that appeals to me. Like we will probably pay for it once the uh, the the press account I have runs out, because it is nice to have ESPN, and I'm happy to see a care you know TV channel willing to do business with me, not on the same old terms. Now it's it's not all good. Dish advertises that you know you can pause and, and rewind and fast forward TV. That's not the case with a lot of the channels. ESPN locks that out entirely. The pause button does nothing. With others, you get that. Uh, and, and there's weird. no DVR. Like, there's no recording. Yes, with you know about half the channels, you do have pause and rewind, and a bunch of them you can also like skip back. If you start watching a show, there's a start over button, which makes it less of a linear TV service and more something like Netflix where you can bring up anything there in the last three days food network is like that. So that's great. And then that's one way in which they're making it better than what you would get, you know, on a traditional cable service. Uh, The other stipulation is it's only one, one device can be tuned in on your account at a time. So, you know, if you have three or four different TVs in the house and people, you know, somebody is going to have to sort of pick who gets to watch but certainly if, if you, you know, live by yourself or if there's just one TV that's on at any given time, it's a good deal.
1: That seems almost like cheating you. They don't expect you to get four accounts. The other thing here is that they're not giving you local stations. Wouldn't it make sense then rather than force someone to get the Radio Shack antenna, And assuming some people don't live close enough to get a decent signal, which is maybe how cable TV started in the first place, for people who couldn't get the signal, to offer the local stations in a particular jurisdiction, this way
6: you get what almost seems to be a full package. Right. So yeah, the local channels thing is a tough thing. For me, it's not a problem. i have pretty good at the reception. And so that, that just sort of pairs well. It's just a question of which input I select on my TV. One area where you will be disappointed with this is if you are a sports fan, the problem is ESPN makes so much money that everyone else is trying to get into the same business. So every team in town has its own separate regional sports network. You've got NBC sports, you've got Fox sports one, there's the CBS sports network, all these other things. And you don't get those. And uh, my reaction to that is, you know, I I like the, the Washington nationals a lot, but they won't take my money. I can subscribe to MLB TV, but I cannot watch the local the local team, not unless you use a you know a proxy server with an exit IP address in some other part of the US, and that's dumb because I'm certainly not going to go back to paying 100 bucks a month for TV. And as far as the others, like you know, I like to watch Georgetown basketball. I was at a game last night. We lost, unfortunately. You know, they're all over the place. Some of their some of their games are on Fox. Last night's was broadcast on the uh, CBS Sports Network. And you know what? No. I'm not going to pay for all these other channels, so I'm just going to do without because, sorry, <laughs> there's only so much you are going to spend on TV. So do business with me on those terms or, or don't, I guess.
1: So you have to basically accept Dish Network's conclusion as to what this package would offer, not have, for example, an a la carte menu where you can pick, okay, you get 20 channels, whatever you want for this price. That's it. No change. Or you can change your channels at any time, but you never get more than that.
6: Yes. That's what a lot of people would like, where, yeah, you, you were putting together your own bundle and you only get the things you want. I mean, looking at the stuff in the current Sling TV bundle, CNN, I could really do without. I spent 17 years in a newsroom where there were always TVs tuned on to one news channel or another. And you know what? I really get my fill of CNN waiting in airports. So that's not what I'd pay for.
1: But and Besides, if you like MSNBC or Fox, what do you do?
6: Right. Yeah. You could be disappointed whistling that way. On the other hand, anything that chips away at the traditional monolithic, you know, one bundle for everyone TV mo- TV business model is good. And yeah, I don't have a problem. I, it could be better. But this is something I would pay money for. Whereas I cannot say the same about the bundle dish would sell me via satellite or what Comcast would send to my house or what Verizon would send to my house.
1: So-called version 1.0. The other issue, of course, is about the bandwidth you use. What about the picture quality? Does the picture quality compare to what you get from cable and satellite?
6: Not quite as good. If you're watching from the couch, it's pretty good. I'd say it's, you know, at least as good as Netflix. When you get up close, you can see it is, it is not quite, it seems a little less than HD. And what makes me sure it is not a dictionary definition of HD is that Dish won't say what the resolution is. They give you the, they give you this kind of word salad explanation of, you know, we ain't provide a really good picture uh, under these constraints when I ask the question where I am, I am seeking an answer in the form of a, re- a resolution, <laughs> you know, 720p, 1080p, something like that. So it's a bit less than HD, but certainly for, for my purposes, it's good enough.
1: I notice it will be on the Roku device, but at the start, at least not on the Apple TV, shouldn't it be?
6: It should be, yeah. It's, you know, their app development, it doesn't all seem to be going at the same basis. I tested it. The the iOS app on an iPad worked well. AirPlay was broken. Couldn't get that to work, and I didn't get an explanation from Dish out of that. The Android app I tried on a Nexus 9 tablet was horrible. It would kept like stop playing all the time. Just a a huge pain to deal with. And I don't know why that is. I have not seen an update for that. I don't think I have. Actually, if I had the, the Nexus 9 in front of me, I'd check, but... I think it's downstairs. So, yeah. And for instance, Chromecast support isn't in there yet. And that's an obvious thing. And one of the people in their exhibit at CES said, yes, we're going to bring Chromecast support, but it's going to be a little while. AirPlay support should be there when it launches, which I definitely have not seen the Sling TV app updated in iOS yet.
1: So there's still a work in progress there. And you can expect then that there probably will be changes. Now, at this point, is that incumbent on direct tv and local cable providers just jump in this game say okay we'll have
6: our streaming service well some of them are doing that verizon apparently is readying some sort of over-the-top internet only service sony is working on one as well uh there's yet another rumor about apple doing that let's and
1: talk about the rumor about apple yes in a moment rob pegarero writes for usa today yahoo tech and lots of places i'm gene steinberg you're in the tech night out live
0: A little right, a little left, but always independent-minded. The Genesis Communications Network, GCN. You pick up the receiver. With your heart racing and sweat dripping from your forehead, you finally muster the courage to dial the number to call into your favorite talk radio show. It rings once, twice, and then.
6: Hello, it's GCN. What's your name and the state you're calling from?
0: Surprised you got through, you squeak out. Jason from Minnesota. Please hold. As you patiently wait for your turn, you begin to daydream about being a famous talk radio host and what it would be like to have your own show. Jason from Minnesota, you're up. Millions of loyal listeners worldwide waiting to call and talk to you. Caller, are you there? Cheering crowds surround you, calling out your name.
3: on. on. Going once. Twice. Okay, we got to move on to the next caller.
0: You blew it. Huh? Wait, no! Interact with the hosts you're listening to right now, online at GCNlive.com. Click on the community link. Engage with other listeners. Ask questions. Start debates. Don't agree with a host? Let them know. Be a part of the community at GCNlive.com.
10: You're listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You can go to plus.technightowl.com, p l u s. and we urge you to sign up for Tech Night Owl Plus. This is the premium version of the show. Higher quality audio cut right from the recording master. We omit 41 minutes of network commercials too. Plus.technighthow.com. We have Rob Peguerero here. And the big question with regard to Sling TV is it's on Roku. Maybe it'll come to Chromecast. Do they cut a deal with Apple next? Not just AirPlay, but an actual app
6: on Apple TV. So it's got to be there. That's an obvious thing to have. Uh, it's not there yet. And with the way Apple adds apps to Apple TV, who knows? You know, there there isn't an Amazon app because clearly that's unthinkable, uh, even though, you know, Netflix competes with the iTunes store, but they're apparently allowed. There isn't a Pandora app, which I find inexplicable. Pandora shipped an app for WebOS <laughs> and they're not on Apple TV. So there should be a Sling TV app there. But if there isn't one in a year, I won't be surprised one bit.
1: Of course, Apple may be, as you say, working on their own version. So is there an Apple alternative in our future? Is that the direction of Apple TV? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because it doesn't really refine the Apple TV interface. It just gives you another service.
6: Yeah, Apple TV is one of those products where, you know, it's like a hobby and they got bored with it because they haven't really done a whole lot. They took forever just to add the ability to, you know, hide channels from the screen in some... I guess the worker used to, had, used to be you, you had to activate parental controls and use them to hide some of the channels. Uh, you know, they, they pick the most random stuff to show up there. So, yeah, and they haven't changed the basic product in a long time. And, and since then, you know, Chromecast has come out. Roku has kept on evolving. Roku is now built into some TVs, although as I wrote about in USA Today the other weekend, uh, on those Roku TVs, you don't get some of the channels you get on a, with a regular Roku box. Ooh. <laughs> TV can be so stupid sometimes. Well, yeah, you think ESPN, that Roku,
1: ideally, even Apple, could make a deal with some TV makers to have premium sets with built-in Apple TV.
6: Right, but again, see that I really don't see happening, unless it'd be some TV manufacturer who was willing to give Apple complete control over their interface, because Apple is certainly not going to let Samsung, hypothetically speaking. Uh, you know, frame their interface with their own. So, yeah, I don't see that happening. But yeah, with the Roku TVs, it's it's it is literally dumb. It's it's Disney deciding that the Watch D- Disney and Watch ESPN apps, they, they don't want to have them available on smart TVs. And a friend of mine discovered this when he bought a Roku TV, and he was not amused. And it's stupid. Like, do they really think that is going to like preserve their core franchise? No, it's only going to annoy customers who see them being micromanaged. In in, in such a transparent way.
1: So, can Apple or should Apple get into this space, have their own iTunes streaming TV service or
6: whatever you call it? They should. I mean, if they can negotiate a deal, um, you know, maybe they can beat Dish's pricing. I don't see why they wouldn't want to. And, you know, remember, they were early on with getting, uh, bringing TV shows to iTunes. They had that that rental deal for a while. Um, You know, for a long time, if you wanted to watch HBO stuff, over the internet, you would basically have to wait for it to show up on iTunes. So I don't see why they, they couldn't do it. I, I don't see why they shouldn't. Um, and it, it seems like it's one of the things you got to have same way. They're apparently going to have some stream music service based on beats because yeah, if, if you sell digital media online, that's what you need. I don't know if Apple will follow, you know, Amazon and Netflix's habit of producing their, their own content. I don't know if they need to, but you know yeah either either they come out with some over the top tv service or you know somebody else gets that icon spot on the apple tv home screen
1: or does apple make a deal with the cable or satellite providers to become the front end like a tivo it's Don't the front see that end happening. so when you tune to your cox or your comcast or your direct tv or dish you see it all in the apple interface you get the same content of course It's just it's Apple-controlled, and Apple bundles in its own services. Is that that something these people would want to do, or is it a matter then of the control factor? But then again, if they're losing customers, maybe not a lot of customers, but if they're losing customers who are cord cutters, and Apple can come in there and say, we can help you stem that tide and maybe bring in more new customers, wouldn't they think twice before they say no?
6: Nope, not going to happen. I mean, certainly w- one problem for Apple is, yeah, cable and satellite vendors seem to think they have really good interfaces. Well, most of them don't. Like the Comcast X1 interface is kind of sharp. That's not bad. But for the most part, they, they have a more elevated sense of the quality of their UX than maybe their customers do. And the other problem is, if you're Apple, do you want to be able to say, you know, you want to have some kind of really broad distribution, like, they could have the iPhone being exclusive for one carrier at launch because AT&T, singular at the time, did have nationwide service. You cannot do that. Um, and if you can only get some, like, for instance, RCN, they're a smaller cable operator. They they basically said, our DVR is going to be the TiVo. And, you know, it's the TiVo interface. They're, they're really small. That's not a huge chunk of the U.S. that can get it. And I don't think Apple is going to, wanting to get into a business where they're, they're geo-fenced <laughs> in and out of particular markets.
1: Well, certainly they'll get close to a pretty wide circulation once or if Time Warner and Comcast are
6: together. Right. But Comcast is not going to let Apple put their interface on it. I mean, they've spent all this time and money on X1. That's not going to happen. I don't, I'm increasingly skeptical that Comcast Time Warner Cable is going to happen either. Uh, although it, it, may, it may wind up living in history, is one of the things that tip the scale on net neutrality. When you see big telecom, you know one of the first things they do, this was announced like right after that court ruling where Verizon beat the FCC. The next headline you see in, in telecom news is, oh, look, the biggest cable operator wants to buy the second biggest one, and they're justifying it by saying, well, it's not like you could choose between us now anyways. Which sort of, you know, is a nice way of reminding people how powerless they are in their choice of TV and broadband provider.
1: Well, I have a choice of two.
6: I actually I have doing a better than of three. Us? I
1: can have Direct TV, I can have Dish Network or Cox. Now there's a Prism service from CenturyLink that's not available to me. So I do have three options. Now for broadband, it's CenturyLink or Cox, and CenturyLink is using ADSL. And they give you 40 megabits genuine or 50, and sometimes you can get 100 if you pay enough for it. So there are options. They're trying to compete, but there you go. And then again, of course, with all this streaming, what happens to this magical Apple interface for television that Steve Jobs was touting in the official biography by Walter Isaacson? Was that
6: just smoke and mirrors? That's increasingly what I'm thinking. Um. Either that or Jobs was assuming his reality distortion field would, would encompass the minds of cable industry executives who would who would say, yes, you can make our boxes from now on. Because, you know, it's been a while since he he said those things to Walter Isaacson. And, um, yeah, you plan on shipping anything anytime soon, Apple? We're all waiting.
1: I was thinking here the sense was maybe just spooking the competition. Because think how many times potential competitors at a CES will introduce things in anticipation of what Apple might do, even if Apple doesn't do it.
6: I, I had fun. I, I had to do a column, you know, the Tuesday after CES, I got, I got home late Friday night and Monday morning, wake up, think, Oh, right. I need to write a column now. And I realized, you know what? It, it's good to hold the industry accountable. So I did a list of products that were announced at CES and never actually shipped or, you know, never shipped in in any, Thing close to the original concept. And, yeah, it's, it's a long list, a lot of more connected devices. Like, there was one year, you know, talk about partnering with the cable industry. Panasonic was going to make this portable DVR the work with Comcast service. Well, they, they announced it, they made a big show of this cooperation, and then uh, a year later they're reevaluating it, and it never actually shipped. Um, or maybe it was never
1: intended to ship,
6: but just see what kind
1: of interest they could gauge to see if there was a demand for a product. Like, Microsoft would introduce things that never see the light of day and i'm not going to get into hololens please don't want to talk about hololens let's talk once more one more segment with rob pegarero i'm gene Steinberger in the tech night how live
0: independently leading the way for the nation compelling talk for every political persuasion we are
1: gcn
17: How many good people procrastinate? When was the last time you updated your last will and testament, your living will, and your health care power of attorney? If you could get these documents included with your Legal Shield membership for no additional charge, wouldn't it just make sense to have the peace of mind of owning a Legal Shield membership? Worry less and live more with lsprotection.com. That's lsprotection.com or call 855-340-SAVE. That's 855-340-7283.
7: Results will vary from case to case.
5: The Freeze-Dry Guy presents Freeze-Dried Turkey, Freeze-Dried Ham, and the No-Bake Casserole Unit February Sale. Listen, if you trust the Freeze-Dry Guy as thousands have for their emergency food supply since 1970, don't wait to hear how great this deal is because it's unlimited supply. Call 866-404-3663 and ask for our new Turkey and Ham Unit. Normal retail price $359.94. Sale price $251.94. You save $108. And it's chock-full of high-quality, great-tasting, freeze-dried diced turkey and ham from Mountain House. The gold standard and long-term storage products or get the freeze dry guys no big ba- casserole unit 153 servings per case at normal retail price of 215.94 sale price 172.75 you save 43.19 but supplies are limited and we always pay shipping right to your door within the lower 48 states call 866-404-3663 and make freeze dry a favorite and check for monthly specials don't miss the freeze dry guys february sale call 866-404-3663 or visit freezedryguy.com. You're listening to the Tech Night Owl live
10: with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next. So speaking
1: of Microsoft. Yes. Okay, so we have Satya Nadella being the CEO, and people are saying, well, a lot of differences there. But you know what? It's the same vision that was... Espoused by Steve Ballmer, Windows Everywhere. I still see Windows everywhere. Okay, so there's a version for Office on the iPad and coming to Android. It's still Windows everywhere. Isn't that the same old vision with maybe a new dress?
6: No, I mean you look at one big change is, you know, making an upgrade, the upgrade to Windows 10 free, you know, for at least the first year. And it, it's not like free as in you get to use it a year for free and then we'll charge you for each year to keep it around. That that's such a different thing. Where you yes, to be, but it
1: doesn't apply to the enterprise where you're paying for regular support licenses on long term. Oh sure. Or to OEMs. OEMs aren't getting Windows free.
6: True. True. But on the other hand, just trying to encourage the upgrade like that. That to me, the fact that the most recent Microsoft product launch is not Windows 10, but the the Outlook app for iOS. I haven't tried it. Apparently, it's really good. Microsoft, the best Gmail client you can get in iOS by some accounts <laughs> is from Microsoft. Which is such a strange state of affairs. I don't even know what to make of it. So, yeah, it it is not the company I saw in the late 90s or even the early 2000s where, you know, they're they're seriously going after other platforms, trying to go to where their customers are instead of saying, why can't you use Windows like the rest of us? Which is good, you know, and they've got some good ideas. I would like to see Windows Phone doing better than it is because I don't trust uh, Apple and Google to have all the smart ideas and wireless the only viable third way we have is Windows Phone. Blackberry's not going to cut it. So we'll see. You know, I'll see in about three weeks. I'm off to Barcelona for Mobile World Congress. It'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, Windows Phone presence I see there.
1: And we'll have you on right after that. Maybe also see how many of the Android phones can be updated to Lollipop. There's now a 5.1 version, supposedly with lots of bug fixes, but will anything more than a few percent? Be able to go to it let's go back to the windows 10 thing first yes. of all now i can see here where just regular people get the free upgrade encourages them to continue to use their pc not switch to a mac you buy a new pc of course you're paying for the license for windows but if you use windows 7 you'll get the free upgrade if you use windows 8 or 8.1 you get the free upgrade but the albatross on microsoft's back is windows xp which is not part of that list
6: you know what if you're running Windows XP in the year 2015, nothing is going to get you to upgrade until your computer breaks. You know, I've, I've had the discussion with readers. It's not worth talking about XP users. First of all, if you think that's the best version of Windows ever shipped, I would say you're wrong. XP has a ton of problems, especially now, 14 years after it's shipped. But if you're holding on to it, whether because you really like it or because there's some app that was never updated, it doesn't matter. There's nothing Microsoft could do to get those people to upgrade. Because, like, Windows 7 was a pretty good version of Windows. And if so, you weren't going to do that, certainly the machine you have XP on will not run Windows 10. So it's not even worth talking about XP uh, holdouts in terms of, like, does their existence mean Microsoft is doing something wrong? You know, it's weird. You don't always see that in in Apple. No one is holding on for dear life to to OS 10, 10 10.1. Well, they might
1: be holding for dear life to Snow Leopard, but I have a suspicion that a lot of the people are doing that because either their computers, their Macs won't run the later OS versions or they need to run those old PowerPC apps. And that's got to be 90% of the problem.
6: And that's a reasonable case for holding on because, you know, certainly uh, Lion was not (laughs) a great release when it shipped. Mountain Lion was pretty good. Mavericks and Yosemite, yeah, Yosemite has gotten a little bit better. But some of the stuff, you know, the stupid transparency effects... in in Yosemite. Apple, stop it. No one wants them. They look awful. What were you thinking? I was thinking that
1: if you're going to offer eye candy of that nature, instead of making it the default, you make it the option. You say, okay, we'll keep it simple. And then if you want a little bit of flourish and you've got really good hardware on your Mac with powerful graphics chips, we'll offer a eye candy theme. You get all the crazy special effects you want, but standard ain't there.
6: You could label it. Do you remember the uh, old Eudora email client that was an option in there labeled something like waste processor cycles drawing trendy 3D junk?
1: <laughs> exactly. But Apple doesn't do that. They want to enforce something on yeah. everyone. And if you don't like it or can't use it, maybe then you turn it off. Like, for example, on iOS, you go to accessibility and turn off the motion and you turn yes. off the zooming. And, you know, I've done that on some older iPads. And it's a revelation how much faster they run. With all that nonsense taken away. Yep. But as you say, Yosemite was a little shaky. Mavericks. What are the one or two worst problems you have with Yosemite that Apple still hasn't fixed?
6: Uh, Let's see. Well, I would say a program that spends so much time in mail is still, it's gotten better, but it still just behaves weirdly. Like right now, I'm just clicking over to it. If I click from one mailbox to another, 50-50 odds, It will select some message from like 2011, and I have to scroll all the way down to find it again. The find function still takes too long to actually locate stuff. This is not a hard thing to do. Transparency effects have gotta go. There are a bunch of things. We did a little inventory in my blog, let me.
1: My problem is every so often after you have the app open for a while, the listing, the little status message showing how many messages are in a mailbox. Like for example, Right now, I see one—it's thirty-four hundred thirty-two messages in parens. That disappears. And it's not as if hmm. Apple doesn't know about it. I can tell you—they've known about that one since the very early betas of Yosemite. They've even marked it as a duplicate, but they've done nothing to fix it, unless, of course, the ten point ten point three that's just yes. been released to developers. Maybe that fixes it.
6: Yeah. So here, here, this is something I did a few weeks ago on my own blog, um, AirDrop. I just can't get it to work between OS 10 and iOS, and of course because Apple doesn't believe in Bluetooth file transfer on iOS, I can't use what has worked, what worked fine for my Trio 650 seven years ago, and the autocorrect is nuts. Like if I capitalize a word, it's a name. You shouldn't try to respell it for me. Who thought that was a good idea? I don't know if it started in Yosemite, but it just drives me bonkers, and. Yeah, what was the the latest one I saw? It was some really egregious misspelling. Roku. I sent an email to somebody to a PR person at Roku where it changed Roku in the subject line to rook. Like set aside the fact that it's autocorrecting something that is clearly capitalized, a name. Roku's kind of a major product. It should be in the dictionary.
1: Well, I run into things with autocorrect all the time, but what I do is I create the exception. I have it learn the spelling where it does things wrong, and that way, hopefully, it will do things right. There's no guarantee of it, and I don't know. I'm still hearing of people who have had Wi-Fi connection issues with Yosemite. I have never seen that problem, but if people are still having it after two releases, the latest of one indicated there's a fix. If they're still having that problem, hopefully, Apple will get a fix now, not next year, not with 10.11. Rob Peguerero, can you tell our listeners where we can find more of the stuff that
6: you do? You can read me at yahoo tech at yahoo.com slash tech at USA Today at usatoday.com slash tech. My blog is at com, and I'm on Twitter as at robpeguerrero. That's R-O-B-P-E-G-O-R-A-R-O. And if you can't spell that
1: name, you go to technightowl.com and we have his name there and the link to his primary blog. So you'll always find him and find his content. You can find us on Twitter. We're known as Tech technightowl. Tech Owl on Twitter, if you go to technightowl.com, you can download episodes of the Tech Night Owl live going back to 2007. I don't know why we keep them up. That old, but that's what we do. We also have that special premium subscription service which is called Tech Night Plus, At Tech Night Plus. You can subscribe to the ad-free version of the show, meaning we take out 41 minutes of ads the network ads. We give you a higher resolution copy because it comes right from the master tape that we generate and submit to the network so you get better quality audio, especially when we get a guest there who's on a bad cell phone connection. It sounds better, a modest, modest subscription fee. Plus.technightowl.com, P-L-U-S.technightowl.com. And our other radio show, The Paracast, about things that go bump in the night at theparacast.com, theparacast.com. This weekend, we have conscious media producer. That's really what it is. Conscious media producer Ron James, who will be teaming up with us for something called the Paracast TV channel, or the Paracast video channel. We're still working that out. Here on the Tech Night Out Live, Rob Pegorero. Thanks for joining us this week.
6: You're welcome.
4: The Tech Night Owl Live is a
19: copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. We'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bad channel.